Well, hello there, holiday fans, and welcome to Cloud Wars Live, where we explore today's digital revolution by speaking with the business executives and thought leaders who are changing how the world lives, works, plays, learns, and dreams. Our guest today is certainly one of those thought leaders, Christopher Lockhead, who's a monthly visitor with us and Lockhead on Different. Christopher's been a best-selling author. He's been a CMO of some big publicly traded companies. He's a serial entrepreneur and advisor to entrepreneurs, and he has now become one of the top business podcasters in the world. Christopher, it's always a pleasure to have you. Wow, with that kind of an intro, I hope I don't suck. <laughs> well, we'll It's great see. to see you, Bob. <laughs> yeah, you too, you too. And I mentioned holiday fans to everyone because depending on when you see this, it's about uh, a week or so before Christmas and the holiday season. And so I'm wearing my festive outfit here, Christopher. It's good to see you've got the place decked out. Yes, uh, we've decorated the studio for Christmas here, clearly. And it. uh, it's nice to see you wearing your Christmas sweater. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Well, Chris, a couple things today. Um, <clears throat> as always, you've supplied some interesting ideas here. We're going to get to a very provocative piece that you and a couple of... Uh, Good Buddies have written for HBR, but, and Christopher, you've raised a very intriguing proposition here regarding data, and I know we've heard uh, various people try to come up with metaphors like data is the new oil, which I never thought made much sense. You've come up with something I think a lot more intelligent and interesting, so tell us what's on your mind here about this. By the way, I couldn't agree with you more. I think data is the new oil is completely stupid. Um, we're trying to get rid of oil here, people. Like, come on, get, <laughs> get, give your head a shake. Okay, so here's what I believe. I'll, you know, I'll get to the punchline, and then we can work back as to um, you know, how me and my collaborators have kind of got to this aha, Bob. But the net of it is we have now hit a point in history where data is more valuable than cash. And the short answer for why, that, um, why we believe that is data is more monetizable. So cash is really only monetizable in, 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 in one major way anyway, and data is monetizable in a lot of different ways. And so um, data can be converted into value uh, in more and powerful ways than cash. And the other thing I would argue is um, the value of data is increasing exponentially right now. And inflation's inflation. And so the value of cash is sort of pegged at whatever inflation's at. Mm -hmm. And so the bottom line is, um, I think there's more creative things you can do with cash, or excuse me, with data than cash to create value as measured by a bunch of things, company revenue, company profits and earnings, you know, being certainly one of them, market cap being another. Um, but I also think there's even more than that we can get into if you like. And so the bottom line is, data is more valuable than cash. Well, Chris, one of the reasons I think that that's so compelling there in a number of ways is, and, and again, not to, not to pound on this thing, we both agree wasn't real intelligent to start with, but data is the new oil, you use oil once, and you know, largely that's gone. Data, the, it seems used the right way intelligently, the more you use it, the more valuable it becomes. So it's, as you're saying here, all those different ways it could be exploited, and then over time, it sort of compounds on itself. Yes, exactly. And so I know it sounds outrageous, um, and um, it's certainly meant to be thought-provoking, but uh, we actually believe it to be the case. So, 
Chris, one of the things that you're, uh, you, you've brought up here, sort of in this context here, is about uh, the range of people around the globe now. We, we've tipped over the halfway mark here, right? People yeah. online. Yeah. And so, you know, let me back into the argument. This is certainly one place to start. And uh, all of this is from, uh, um, the, the, she's nicknamed the queen of the internet, Mary Meeker, from her most recent internet report, which is, of course, always something we all need to take a look at. But anyway, she says for the first time, more than half the global population were identified as internet users. In 2018, the report found approximately 3.8 billion, 51% of everyone on earth were connected to the internet. So in 2008, it was more than half people. And the interesting thing is um, that's up 49% from, um, um, 49%, that doesn't sound right. We've gone from 3.8 to 3.6 billion in, uh, from 2017 to 2018. The other aha here that she points to is the American adult, not, not teenager, adult, spends 6.3 hours a day connected to some kind of digital media. And so you and I have talked in the past, Bob, about how for some people, the digital world is, is or has moved from being an adjunct to their let's call it life experience in the physical world to actually becoming their primary experience. So I, I would argue there are certain people on our planet today who the digital experience they have with their life is their primary one, is their most important one, and the physical experience they have of life is their secondary one. And to me, this data point really sort of teases that out. If you think about uh, adults, 6.3 hours a day, Chris, that, uh, that notion that you just brought up, and I want to just link it back for a second, that data is more valuable than cash. But, you know, think about what you just said. And I, I'm not, I don't disagree with you. I maybe haven't fully embraced it, as you put it, but where your physical life becomes your secondary life. I mean, that's a, that's a non-trivial uh, observation on the world. Well, Look, I'll give you a horrible aha around this for me. There are people, and now not just young people, who commit suicide as a result of this thing that didn't used to exist, that today exists, that is called um, cyberbullying. And so when I first heard this, you know, and this will just expose what a horrible person I am, my thought was, what are you, nuts? Who gives a shit what anybody says about you online? Why, why would you even care, right? Um, but what this is indicative of is if you're spending 6.3 hours a day connected, it is a major and in some cases primary way in which you work, communicate, collaborate, and consume information. In that context, your digital relationships and your digital, I don't know what you want to call it, persona, presentation, the digital use case of you, if I could, mm -hmm. is either the primary or certainly very important. So um, it's akin to, you know, a kid who, a young kid who goes to school and something terrible happens and the whole class makes fun of them and maybe gives them a horrible nickname and calls them that for some period of time and it just builds up and builds up and sooner or later, it's too emotional for that child to handle, and, and they decide to take their own life. That's exactly what's going on digitally, only it's not just going on with children. And so my point is, if 
what happens to you digitally can be so profoundly upsetting that it would cause you to take that action, then it, that to me is a harbinger of the value human beings now place on their, the digital experience they have of life. Yeah. Yeah, it's a sobering thought, uh, it, you know, as you put it that way. And again, just, uh, just a note here to remind people your point about the 6.3 hours a day, that's adults, not teenagers. Correct. So that's a stunner. Yeah. So then the next piece for, okay, so building out this argument, how do you get to that um, uh, data is more valuable than cash? Um, and this, all this stuff comes from Statistica, if I think I'm saying it right, uh, .com. Um, according to IDC, uh, 2020, by 2025, the average person will interact with a connected device nearly 4,800 times a day. <laughs> 5,000 plus or minus times a day. Even if they were half wrong, 25, you think you'd touch a digital device 2,500 times a day? I don't know. I guess it depends on what your def definition of a device is, but that's a stunning number. Further, there's going to be a 10x increase in the amount of data on planet Earth, according to IDC, 163 zettabytes. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds massive. Um, yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, Chris, I just, you know, the 4,800 times a day when I, you sent that over, I looked at that and I said, okay, I'm not saying <clears throat> people sleep eight hours a day, but say eight hours when for whatever you know, God forsaken reason, they are not uh, digitally interconnected. That's mm. 16, that's 300 <clears throat> of these uh, interactions an hour, you know, five of them a minute. Yeah, I think there's going to be, you know, sensors up your hoo-hoo or something. I don't know what's going to yeah. be going on. Um, but, you know, it could be in all seriousness. Uh, some of those things might just be readings that um, your, your, you know, your wearables uh, are, are sending. I don't know. Um, but here's the other thing. Do you remember, I was trying to remember this, when exactly did the term Internet of Things start to emerge? It was probably not 15 years ago, but maybe more than 10 years ago. Do you remember, Bob? I would say it's at 10, 12. Yeah. I remember the first time I heard it, and it was like, it, you know, it's when you hear something new like that, it stops you in your tracks. And then yeah. it's one of those things that your just head goes, but bam, when you realize, oh, shit, everything could be connected to the Internet. I remember in the beginning, some people were calling it a TerraNet, right? But anyway, regardless, this IoT thing has literally gone off the charts. Um, uh, according to Statistica, by 2025, 75 and a half billion connected devices. So, wow. <laughs> what is this telling us? This, te this is telling us that connectedness is coming to everything and data is coming to everything. And there will be more data available to do more things with than, I mean, clearly any of us could have imagined. And I've begun to sort of think about, okay, so what's not going to be a connected thing that creates data? Think. Um, you, might, you might not want to have a sensor on every plant in your garden, maybe just the, the, the strategic ones. I, I don't, like... I don't know, was there, will there be a sensor on that bookshelf behind you? Maybe not, I don't know. But as you start to think about it, you go, 
hey, wait a minute. A lot of shit can and will be connected. And you ready for my most recent one? Fire away. This welcome to the smart basketball, uh, soccer ball, and medicine ball. Now, let's get into this here. What Did Jobs launch the iPhone in... Uh, 2009, am I remembering this right? Let me get this right. Uh, I'm not sure years. There 2007. Okay, so we're 12, almost 13 years in. Am I doing that right? Yes, sir. Okay. So 13 years ago, when Steve Jobs stood up and introduced this thing, did anybody sit there and go, oh, yeah. And one day, there's going to be a sensor and a soccer ball connected to that thing. And the your new iPhone is going to teach you how to play soccer, basketball, and work out with a medicine ball in, in a much more effective and powerful way. That yeah, that's what's gonna happen. Well, you knew that back then, but yeah, you know, well, exactly. For us, for us mortals though, how'd you get there? And uh, you know, this this thing of the the smart basketball, I I guess, Chris, if I seeing this latest point from you about the smart sports, smart balls, smart recreation who doesn't want to have smart balls bob yeah oh uh, yes absolutely absolutely and um but you think about it you know as you're saying this uh this cocoon in some ways and you know maybe cocoon is a pejorative thing what's the right thing this uh you know structural superstructure you can surround yourself with of intelligence and data if you're a child you know kids growing up want to play sports it would just seem unnatural to them not to have correct you know, something that, that steers it this way. Yeah. And so now you have this company, this company is called dribble up and um, they have created a quote unquote smart basketball, which tracks a bunch of things uh, and gives that data back to your phone and presents you, you with different and, and, and more effective ways of, of training and using the ball. And um, there's a startup that I've uh, talked to recently um, and they are using sensors and probes and, and, and data uh, to improve the athletic performance of athletes. And sort of, if you were to draw a Venn diagram, it'd be like um, uh, performance data, health healthcare uh, tracking data, and then sort of best practices of the two data. In other words, you know, if, if the, the, the technology can begin to sense um, that, world-class runners do these things and you're off here and on there uh you can immediately take action to run more effectively as a world-class runner and they're olympic athletes using um this kind of technology the company's called power lab and so look it just it doesn't matter where you want to look what's happening is everything is being connected and, and so data is being created and data and connection is coming to everything um, and, you know, it's a fun exercise to try to think about what it's not coming to. And so to your point, um, we're now at a place where people go, well, yeah, well, of course you'd have a smart basketball. Duh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. In just a decade, it's gone from not unimaginable, but I doubt that was on anybody's mind to something now where, as you said, of course, Chris, it might be, you know, when you see those things like the 75 billion interconnected devices by 2025, your question from a few minutes ago maybe the more interesting thing now is what are the, what's not connected that's going to be the uh that's going to be the outlier yeah write that list over the you know holiday dinner table so what do you think's not going to be connected 
Chris, you know this, uh, I, I think for business people, you know, the, these numbers, what you're talking about with Dribble Up, what they're trying to do here, ultimately, I think it's maybe going to be one of the next big challenges. It's already something of a challenge for business leaders, but as they're forced to try to remake their companies to adapt to and optimize what they do here in the digital world, this notion of what you're describing, smart basketball, smart soccer balls, the consumer or the business customer, when he or she buys a product or service, they're going to move, you know, virtually right into the product development organization. They will be, you know, an integral part of it. And some people could say they're going to be the leader of those product development departments. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think this paradigm of an IT department, as we know it today, um, is officially a broken paradigm. Because, and you tell me how you think about it, you're way smarter. The paradigm I think that guys like us grew up in around information technology was there. As a matter of fact, it was in the con, it's in the speaking, right? IT's job is to support the business, right? There's this phrase that's been around for a long time called the business. We want to deliver value to the business. And in the, in the, you know, I'm, as you know, I'm a student of languaging. The way we talk about things is, in, is, of course, indicative of the way we think about things. And so when those of us in IT say, yes, well, our number one job around here, Bob, at a big, ginormous uh, Fortune 200 company is to support the business. What we're saying is, oh, there's this thing called IT over here, and then there's the business over there. Yeah. And they're not connected. And the reality is, and I think you just said it, you tell me, technology is the business. It always puzzled me when I'd hear people say that. And again, it's not that long ago. And I, they're not bad people or, or dumb people. But there is this cultural thing just sort of pounded into people's head. And it, this, you know, the, the job of the CIO and IT is to support the business. Well, right away, you say, as you just said, I'm not part of the business. I always thought of it like at Thanksgiving. And you've got the grown-up table and the little kids' table, and the IT folks were sort of self-segregating themselves over to the kids' table. And after the adults decided what we're going to do and how we're going to do it, then the little kids get up and run after them and, you know, tell us where we're going, what are we going to do, what do we need to do? And it was sort of suicidal like that. Uh, so I think from the IT organization or the product development, the engineering organization, and more and more companies I hear across all sorts of different industries, Chris is saying, you know, we are really going to do something revolutionary here. We're going to have our engineers go out and meet with customers and help them solve problems. Now, for some of these companies, I'm sure that is a remarkable sort of behavioral and psychological and, you know, process type of change for them. But they better, we, every sort of business better get accustomed to that sort of change because this, this wave of change, the pace of change, the depth of this change is going to, by some of the things you've outlined here, we all better be, get you know, faster moving, more nimble, more agile, more different in the Lockheadian term than we've ever been before. Yes, I, IT is the business, IT is the product, IT is the service. Um, and uh, here's the other one. What's one of the most important functions in the finance organization? Treasury. Why? Where's the money Lebowski, right? <laughs> Somebody's gotta be in charge of the cash right? Well, guess what? 
if data is more valuable than cash, the IT organization is the treasury. And that's why these data breaches, they're not breaching data, they're breaching your corporate treasury, right? That's what's going on. And so I think we all, look, we're all learning this in real time. So I don't mean this in any pejorative way. I'm not trying to, uh, I'm trying to wake myself up as much as anybody else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But the aha is, hey, wait a minute, it is the business. And, you know, recently, Bob, we did a two-part series. We had uh, Mark Randolph, who's the original founder, a co-founder and original CEO of Netflix on. He's got an awesome new book out called That Won't Work. <laughs> and the uh -huh. stories in it are so legendary. And he's so brutally honest. Like there's no, oh, yes, well, we had this whole thing figured out and we were just up and to the right and it was all moonlights and canoes and that was that, right? No, no, no. He gets into the reality of like how they almost sold the business to, to Blockbuster for 50 million bucks and how F the whole thing was and, you know, et cetera. It's, it's fascinating. Great guy. And then the second one we did was a special on Amazon with uh, John Rossman, who was the uh, primary founder inside of Amazon of what they call their marketplace business. In other words, all the products, the e-commerce products they sell that are not from them, that is to say not in their warehouse. He set that up when they were in, at the time, a huge battle with eBay for who, who was really going to dominate commerce. And of course, we know how it, won, how it played out and who won. Anyway, so you, you look for patterns in these things, right? And there's a big aha here. And it's something that Eddie and I wrote about, Eddie Cole and I wrote about, is this idea of a data flywheel and the importance of what that is. And so essentially, uh, simply stated, um, the company that has the most data around who their customers are, what those customers' uh, purchasing and consumption behaviors are, what their, uh, the things they like the best, the things they don't like, et cetera, et cetera. The, the, the company that has the deepest insight, and in some cases, in a very real-time way, um, around customers, is probably going to be the company that wins. Um, and... Here's the big aha about that. Everybody sort of thought, okay, well, that, that's true for quote unquote technology companies. You know, so if you sell software, well, duh, right? Well, Lyft and Uber taught us, uh, hey, it's important for taxis and limos too. And if you think about Lyft and Uber as an example, or you think about dribble up the, the, the ball folks we talked about, I don't know how they thought about it, but here's how I think about it. If you say that the iPhone is the greatest quote unquote platform product of the modern era, Lyft and Uber dribble up, reimagine the taxi or the limo or the basketball like an iPhone. So imagine your products, a platform like the iPhone, Tesla is another legendary example. To the best of my knowledge, they're the only car company that allows you to customize a whole bunch of the quote-unquote experience features inside the car, right? And my friend Joe Pine, who wrote the most legendary The Experience Economy, one of the 10 most important books of the last 25 years, he says, if it can be digitized, it can be customized. And so just like you can customize the screen on your iPhone, you can customize a whole bunch of the features inside a Tesla. And so whether it's a Tesla or it's Lyft 
or it's Dribble Up. These are examples of companies that have reimagined their product as not a product, but a platform that emits data. And therefore, I can create a data flywheel. So if you go to Dribble Up for a second, well, on one hand, and this is what they market, we're giving you data about how to use the ball and perform with the ball to improve your performance, right? That's the value of buying this thing. But guess what? The truth is we are paying for the privilege to give data, uh, a dribble up our data. And they put that into a data flywheel. And they probably already have more data about how people use basketballs, soccer balls, and medicine balls than any plant company on planet earth. And they're not a very, I think they're a very new company, right? But I don't know who the fuck else was doing that. And so, and certainly over the next two years, unless they screw up on their execution, that will be truer and truer. And so, so now if you believe everything's gonna be connected, data's coming to everything, as you believe that, you go, okay, they, let's, let's assume they're first or they're out, out in front with these, these athletic balls. Um, if you wanna try and catch them, it will be very difficult because they have more data than anyone else and they can monetize that data in terms of value they deliver to their customers and insights in terms of what their customers need in a way that no one else can. So, you know, for example, if you go back to Netflix, Disney just entered the streaming business. Now, is Disney gonna be successful? It's hard to believe they won't be. I mean, they have content that is the content of the content, right? And if you have little people in your house, you're probably getting Disney Plus, whether you want it or not, right? That said, are they going to overthrow Netflix? Pretty hard because for 20 plus years, Netflix has been building and monetizing a big data flywheel. They are, uh, as a result, they know they're creating massive amounts of content, right? proprietary content. And one of the massive advantages they have, let me just see if I can figure out um, what their content budget is. It's, it's a stunner. Um, but in other yeah. words, because they know, because they know what all of us consume and they have the biggest content budget um, in the world, um, they know what to create. And so how's anybody going to catch that? Here it is. Uh, this is from mediapost.com. Uh, 2019 Netflix cost to buy, produce, and license content will be 15 billion, up from 12 billion in 2018. Um, and it's expected to grow to over 20 billion uh, next year. So, my point is if you want to create and dominate new market categories, if you want to be the dominating company, there's a very big aha. And that is the company with the fastest growing data flywheel is most likely the one who's going to be able to dominate that category because their lead will soon be insurmountable. And so um, there's a very clear possibility that it'll be impossible to catch dribble up there's a very clear possibility that in spite of the success Disney will have, uh, certainly um, it's going to be very hard to catch Netflix um, and so forth and so on. And so um, that, that's the first piece. The next piece, you know, Eddie's way smarter than me, right? You know that. <laughs> well, I didn't want to say it, but 
you know, let's just, let's just understand who's who here. <laughs> and so Eddie said, hey, let's do some research on this uh, for the HBR article. And he put together a research team. And here's what, what he did. Uh, Fortune creates a list every year of the 100 fastest growing companies. So he took that list of companies over a decade. And um, we set up a criteria for sort of evaluating, do we think this company does or doesn't have a data flywheel? And we sort of applied that lens to it. And we said, okay, for every company on this list over a 10-year period, so we put them in that bucket. So that was a um, subjective analysis, but you know, we think fairly grounded. Um, that said, so we said, okay, if the company has a flywheel, um, how much more valuable are they from a market cap or uh, valuation perspective? And here's what we discovered. The category queens and kings that dominate their market categories that have a flywheel are valued $4.82 more for every dollar of revenue than other high growth fortune companies uh, that don't have a data flywheel. And so the net of it is the, comp the companies that are designing and dominating new markets that are viewed to be doing such with the power of a data flywheel, Wall Street values them at roughly 5x more than companies that aren't doing that. That is to say, if you're the number one provider of basketballs today, the likelihood your valuation or market cap is a lot lower than dribble ups is really high. <laughs> yeah. Wow, wow. <clears throat> Chris and by the way, I'll just say this for the record, for those who are data skeptical, I would agree to be data skeptical, particularly of a character like myself. Um, it's when you want to publish data in the HBR, you better have your data. <laughs> your, ba your data better be tight. <laughs> yeah. they, they get it. They, they dig into it. But anyways, it's a fascinating aha that companies that uh, fast growing companies, already fast growing companies that have a data flywheel are valued 5x more than a traditional fast grower. So Chris, I get sort of the big picture of what you're talking about there. So what, let me ask, what would your advice be to business people? Uh, clearly first, be one of those companies that can get out in front and, you know, create the category creation uh, or the, the, you know, category creation, category king and queen with a data fly rule. But if somebody is in not necessarily one of those businesses, what would you advise them to do? How can you try if you, if, or is it just, if you can't be among the top, the numbers are the numbers, you're gonna have a hard time hacking it. Well, I think the question we all have to ask ourselves is, um, how do we make our product an iPhone? Right, can we use uh, IOT? Can we use some, like what's the technology uh, ingredient we can add to what we provide, whatever our product or service is, that on one hand, will deliver real value to the customer by providing them um, you know, data insights and data capabilities themselves that they can apply in their own business or life, depending on whether it's B2C or B2C, uh, B2B products or services you sell. And the second piece is how do we then harness that data to build this data flywheel. And look, I don't know, let's say you sell piping. Are there sensors that are gonna be on pipes? You know, what, what can you do to your product to digitize your product, right? 
um, or digitize, if you can't figure out a way to digitize your product, is there, are there things you can do to digitize the way you deliver it or um, the experience of it? You know, I'll, I'll give you a simple example. I'm an author. In my second book, we reference a whole bunch of stories that have come from legendary entrepreneurs who've been on the podcast. Well, here's what we did. Every time we do that, there's a click through to a URL back to our website to that episode. Okay. And of course, once you're on our website, we encourage you to sign up to our very awesome newsletter. And that way we can capture your data. And so look, is that a highly sophisticated, super smart, sensor-based IoT super ding-dong idea? No, but we've taken a step to digitizing a book and trying to create the book as a platform for building a relationship with, in this case, a reader. Is it a small step? Sure. Am I particularly proud of it? No. Do I think it's genius? No, but there aren't that many authors doing it. And for our, uh, my third book, we're asking ourselves the same question. How is this book a platform, not a book? And how do we digitize the platform to deliver value for readers and, 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 and for us as authors? I don't know that we have any genius ideas on that yet, but we're still, work, we're still asking the question. And so my point is, even if you sell a physical product that doesn't necessarily feel easily digitized in some way, shape, or form, you know, maybe there's a baby step you can take. But the big point is, no matter what your product or service, I think what this is telling us is we have to reimagine what we do and pretend it's an iPhone. That is to say, it's a platform. And if you believe what Joe Pine says, everything that can be digitized can be customized. And so if we can use some form of digitization, if you'll allow me the jargon, uh, either within our products or services or surrounding our products and services to deliver value to customers in some new way, and so that we have data to mine so that we can build our own data flywheel. I think I, that's where the leap off point of the discussion in the executive offsite, um, I don't want to say should, but it's, it's a good place to start or, or I would consider starting there. Let me say it that way. I think it's uh, quite worth saying, Chris, they should start there. And, you know, one of the things implicit in what you're describing is that businesses have to as you were describing the, the challenges, some people say, well, I have this physical product. How do I get something that's relevant in the data flywheel uh, world to, to do that, but make everything you know, like an iPhone? It's got to be a platform. And part of that is to stop thinking about you're a manufacturer of a product. Instead, you're a co-creator of experiences and get outside you know, your internal product development and do something crazy like go uh, ask some people if you had this how would you customize it and then almost reverse engineer that back to digitizing but i think the urgency of many of the things you've just recommended to people here it couldn't be greater i think the the death spiral for companies over the next handful of years just as there's going to be these runaway successes as you described companies that fail to cut it, fail to buy into this, fail to embrace this notion of the data flywheel. I think they're, they're, the route from uh, where they're diminishing relevance to decline and demise, I think that's going to get quite steep. Well, and look, and this is, this is why you get to the aha, data is more valuable than cash. If you take this Fortune 100, these are fast-growing companies. So this is not like, oh, a fast-growing company next to you know, a company that sucks, right? These are all uh, super high growers, growers as, as tracked by fortune. And then you apply this criteria for 
uh, what's a company that has a data flywheel and what doesn't. And then, and then you do the work and you have this aha that says um, they're 5X more valuable. Well, if in a world where revenue growth is equal and data flywheel growth is disparate, that is to say one company's getting it right and one company's not, the company getting it right with the same revenue dollar growth, with the same revenue growth, excuse me, is valued 5X more. And if your market cap or, or valuation, if you're private, is 5X more than your next competitor, well, guess what? It's, it's gonna be 5X cheaper for you to do an acquisition with your stock. Is that a competitive advantage? Yes. Is there a compounding value that is going to happen in terms of um, the growth rate of your data flywheel over the growth rate of your competitors? Yes, there is. That's why the most important company in Hollywood is in Silicon Valley and it's called Netflix, right? Because Netflix was the first media company on planet earth to build a data flywheel. And they have an unfair competitive advantage that barring some gigantic screw up, which would be surprising given their track record of leadership. I think Reed Hastings is an incredible CEO. Um, that's where they are. And so, you know, maybe a simpler way to ask yourself the question is how do we Netflix our, our business? So Chris, tremendous stuff. And as we wrap up here, I'm going to ask, uh, I'm going to ask a question here of you that sort of pulls together many of the different threads that make up Chris Lockett. Here we have the Canadian living in Santa Cruz fan of the, uh, you know, Rockaway's band, the Ramones. How would the Ramones, if they had a chorus that was data is more valuable than cash, how would the Ramones articulate your message? You mean, how would they put it in a song or how would they use this concept in, to grow their <laughs> band or, or both? Well, I, the, the second one I'd love to hear too, but can you try the first one? Maybe, uh, maybe beat on the brat with a data flywheel. <laughs> Bat. <laughs> Perfect. Right? They had that song called Beat on the Brat oh, with yeah. a Baseball Bat. So it's Beat on the Brat with a Data Flywheel. <laughs> all right. All right. We're going to come back to that. We're going to come back to that. I think so. The other one I will tell you progress. in terms of how this works in the music industry, we just did an episode that I absolutely love with a guy named Yancey Strickler. And Yancey is the co-founder and original CEO of Kickstarter. And as you know, Kickstarter completely reimagined what it is to... Um, what it is to get a company up and running and, and funded, and as a result became a category king and queen themselves. Uh, he's written this new book called What the Future Could Be. It's a stunner, and he is a smart, engaging, uh, smart, engaging guy. And he tells a story in the book, and we talked about it on the podcast, where um, one of the problems in the music business is, uh, you know, pick a major band that you like, uh, you know, Pearl Jam's going on tour, Van Halen's going on tour, Eminem, whatever it is, many of the tickets get sold on the secondary market and are digitally scalped today, right? And try as they might, um, you know, there are things that various bands have done and so forth and so on, but in general, it's hard to figure this out. So Adele, um, on a recent tour, wanted to solve this problem because the aha for her was, well, if I don't solve this problem somehow, the only people who are in the audience are a bunch of rich people. And I want to perform to my most 
uh, you know, enthusiastic fans and some of them might be rich and a lot of them aren't being. So how, how do I allocate tickets? Anyway, uh, via technology, she built an algorithm or her people did, I assume. I don't think she sat there and coded it, Bob. Um, yeah. But anyway, they created an algorithm to look at digital fan usage of um, and consumption of her stuff, Spotify and Pandora and various other things that they do online. And maybe did they share stuff? I don't know what all the criteria were, but they created an algorithm to go out. And when somebody requested a ticket, they went out and essentially did a digital snapshot to get a sense for how big of a Adele fan they were. And they prioritized. So people had to go to a website, request a ticket. This algorithm got ran. And then the allocations of the tickets were based on the algorithm's assessment of how big of a fan you are based on your digital behavior. And um, her ticket prices are cheaper than, than most. And I forget now Yancey's numbers, but I mean, there are extraordinary numbers in terms of, of the number of people that bought her, her live tickets and, then, and, and didn't resell them was, was you know, hugely different than normal. So in other words, it, it was effective in getting tickets into fans who actually wanted to come and it proved out in the data in terms of the resale market. And so here's an example of using technology to build a data flywheel to create insight as to who's requesting your tickets and who your actual real fans are and, and then creating priority for them. Um, and I mean, I don't know about you, but I mean, I, five years ago, could we have imagined that? <laughs> nope, nope. Uh... Chris, that's fantastic. I think, you know, the, separating the interested from the committed and rewarding those people that have uh, established a, a tighter bond with you and saying, here's a way to do it. But a brilliant example of that data flywheel being something that can differentiate and reward and set the priorities the way, a, you know, a business creator wants to do it. Wonderful stuff. Um, Chris, it is always a pleasure to see you. Thank you so much. These are wonderful things. Any, I know you can't talk about your book, but I'm going to ask, any idea when we might be looking for something from you? Um, that's sort of like asking, how long does it take to catch a fish? <laughs> okay, uh, fair enough. We, 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 the, the book will absolutely come out in 2020, and uh, we are targeting the, the first half of 2020, and I'm reasonably confident we'll get there. Um, but, uh, and this may sound stupid, but why stop now? Um, we sort of had this aha, we were driving to a particular date, which we blew. And, and after we blew it, that's when the project got legendary. Like it was good. We were, gonna, we were getting ready to deliver a really good book and we wanted on a particular timeline. We wanted to hit the holiday season this year, blah, blah, yada, yada. And so we were marching fast. And then the minute it became clear that every time the three of us talk, the thing just takes more and more shape and new research needs to get, you know, and so, and so we just sort of said, hey, look, you know what? Um, let's take the pressure of this date off and let's let the, a book is something that you don't write. A book is something you discover. Okay. <laughs> Even if you think you know exactly what you're writing when you start, which is, I think, what we thought in the beginning. It was like, oh, and then there's this. And what about that? And, and so anyways, maybe it's just three mad men spending too much time in a room. But we've decided to say, let's let the, the book Let's, let's write the book we're supposed to write and, and, and do that in the time reign that, that makes sense as opposed to trying to march to some uh, publishing date for the sake of it. Perfect. 
Perfect. That's uh, a very Lockheadian answer there, Chris. And thanks so much for that. Thanks for everything today. Fantastic insights. Data is more valuable than cash. You heard it here first from Chris Lockhead. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, brother. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Same to you, Chris. And thanks to all of you folks for being here. Fantastic holidays to all of you. Thanks for joining us here on Cloud Wars, and we'll see you next time.